3: August 3rd 2021 coming up on Roland Martin unfiltered more than 7 million people, including children, facing eviction and homelessness because of the expiration of the CDC eviction moratorium. We'll talk with California Congresswoman Maxine Waters about what the White House plans to announce regarding this issue. Today is Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Black women are only making 63 cents for every dollar white men make. We'll be joined by Glenda Carr of Higher Heights for America to discuss that. New York City is the first place in the country to say that people who want to eat indoors must show proof of a COVID vaccine. And an independent investigation concluded that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women who worked for him as well as those who did not work for him. Many, including President Biden, are calling for him to resign. In Florida, five Miami Beach police officers have been charged with first-degree battery for the vicious beating of a suspect. In Iowa, five Black Lives Matter protesters settled with the state for banning them from the state capitol. And in Indiana, a community activist is facing murder charges in an incident where he was the lynching victim. And in our Next Door Marketplace segment, the co-founder of 3 Audacity Women's Initiative will tell you how her organization helps Black entrepreneurs produce overhead and increase their profits. And John Hope Bryan, founder of Operation Hope, will join us to talk about Will Smith, Jay-Z, investing in a company that owns rental properties. So why are Black people taking shots at them? John will explain how that makes no sense whatsoever. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. members have been leading the effort to address the expiring moratorium on evictions over the weekend Congresswoman Corey Bush of uh, St. Louis she actually was uh, sleeping outside of the US Capitol to dramatize this very important issue she was joined by Congresswoman Ayanna, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley and others What was happening on the inside, Congresswoman Maxine Waters was meeting with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other top Democrats uh, to deal with this issue. Remember, the Centers for Disease Control used their power to issue a moratorium on evicting people from their homes due to COVID. Well, that expired over the weekend. Significant pressure was being placed on the White House to use their powers to extend that. They were suggesting that they could not do that. Others said, they could. Now we're hearing the White House plans to actually do that tomorrow. Joining us right now is California Congresswoman Maxine Waters, of course. Uh, she uh, always glad to have you on the show. Uh, again, uh, you had the, in, uh, what I, I keep telling people, Congresswoman, you got the inside game, you got the outside game. You got the internal pressure, the external pressure. You had Congresswoman Cori Bush sleeping outside, to dramatize this important issue of evictions, you were on the inside, meet with the folks trying to negotiate a deal. Tell us what's actually going to happen.
4: Well, uh, thank you so very much for giving you know coverage to this very important issue. As you uh, alluded to, uh, the moratorium uh, expired um, basically on Saturday, Saturday night. And so here we were faced with the possible evictions of maybe 11 million families uh, at risk. And so uh, we were caught by surprise uh, when we got a late notice from the White House uh, that the president was telling us that Congress needed to do whatever uh, had to be done uh, to expand and to make sure that the the moratorium uh, was continued. Uh, And we were not ready for that because we were about to leave, uh, you know, to go on the break uh, in August that we normally do. And so uh, what was being said to us by the president was something that possibly could not happen, but I tried. I put together a piece of legislation and um, worked with the leadership. And we were not able to get it up on the floor uh, because, basically, Uh, the Republicans rejected what would have been a unanimous request. And so, knowing that, I and Nancy Pelosi and others always believed anyway uh, that the president should use the power of his office, working with the CDC, to go ahead, despite all of this talk, about what the Supreme Court had said or done. I, for one, uh, did not believe that what the Supreme Court had done Uh, with the case that they was working on uh, should be applied to this emergency that we have now, and that the president should have moved forward uh, in order to get the CDC uh, to do what it had done in the past, and that is extend that moratorium. And so we kept saying it over and over again. We were joined in that effort uh, by many of the members of Congress. This is an emergency. And it's got to be done now. Uh, The Congress is not coming back into session, uh, not gonna be called back, and we're not gonna be able to get them all back. And we know that we don't have all of the votes that we need anyway to get this done. So this is the responsibility of the president of the United States and the CDC. And so with that, uh, what we're learning now is uh, that uh, this is being treated Uh, as a new kind of uh, protection and moratorium that is not an extension of the last one, which legally could get around all of those accusations about the CDC not being uh, legally allowed uh, to uh, discontinue, uh, to uh, to continue rather the moratorium. And so uh, we will expect, we heard a little bit from the president uh, when he came out Uh, just a short while ago and said that the CDC would be making an announcement. Well, Roland, I wanna tell you, this emergency is so important that you did see an inside outside kind of uh, effort being made. Those young people and members of the squad and others who slept out uh, really did draw attention to this national uh, issue, this emergency uh, that we have. And in doing that, I think that they got a lot of people in this country really understanding that the money is there. I put into the bill $46.6 billion, worked very hard with my staff to do that. And as you know, uh, we have housing is infrastructure, another kind of effort that we're doing that talks about this country has got to get ready uh, to know that renters must be protected that people who are out there eligible for rental assistance who are waiting with you know on section eight this stuff has got to stop and so i think this is bringing all of this to the forefront but we know this and those of us who are working on this we know that we cannot sit stand by or sit by and allow these children and these families to be put out on the sidewalk We know that it's unconscionable to have the money in the hands of the states and the governors and they not implement this program and know how to utilize this money, how to staff up, and how to get it done. I have worked with Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, and I said the forms have to be simplified, that many people, who are trying to you know make the application just can't handle the internet and the way that these forms are you know laid out and the information they have to gather and get in order to be eligible we got to do away with a lot of that We've got to make sure uh, that we find out from the governors what's stopping you what is your problem are you saying that you don't have enough staff well Yellen has said let me work with you on that. And she's put her staff together to do that. So now with the unveiling of what CDC is going to do and what they're gonna roll out with, I think this will give us a period of time to really put the push on uh, to get these applications done. Once the renter makes the application and it's accepted, the money automatically goes to the landlords. And I'm worried about these small landlords with two, four, six, eight, 10 units. This is their retirement income. Uh, Many of them still have mortgages uh, they have to pay. But if we expect them to keep up the property and make sure that the plumbing and the electricity and all that's working, they've got to be paid. And I am convinced uh, that We can get this done. We have to get it done. And I'm for the renters and I'm for the landlords, the small ones in particular. And I think the fight that we have been putting up is reaping us some benefits now. This emergency is being addressed. And this is what we were fighting for. Let's see how long uh, that the um, protection will last so that by the time it lasts, we'll be ready to take the next step to do what we need to do in order to make sure that all of this money that we have appropriated will be used, that will be reused correctly, and that we will protect these renters. Uh, yesterday,
3: yesterday uh, I, I was covering uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, National um, Moral Monday here uh, in DC, and uh, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber referenced uh, what Congressman Cory Bush was doing. These are some of the photos from her uh, Twitter page uh, where they were out there uh, at the Capitol. And one of the things that he said and he said that was important, he said, he said, isn't it amazing how this country was was real quick to real quick. Congress was able to find the money for major corporations, airlines and others who were impacted by COVID. Here we're talking about seven million people. We're talking about people uh, who are still dealing with not just um, the cost if you will but still dealing with daycare still dealing with hours uh being cut all of those things and it, 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 it it's it's amazing how folk in congress are a real good a real good at finding uh resources for corporate america but when it comes to poor folks when it comes to broke folks folks who work when it comes to people who are the frontline workers ah it's, ah, it's you know i We don't have it. It's just a little tight. We don't know how we're going to pay for it.
4: You know, the shame of this is the money is there. I know. I put the money in the budget. I work with my staff. $46.6 billion. The money is there in the hands of the governors and the states. We sent the money to them. And so the lack of resources is not an excuse for not getting this done. But I want to tell you that these governors and these—some of the mayors, et cetera, they just didn't know how to get it done. They didn't know how to take all of these resources we put in their hands and make it work. And so we're saying to them, you've got to get it done. And in the period of time uh, that this uh, moratorium is going to be extended. We've got to do everything that we can working with the governors and the churches and legal aid and nonprofits and all of that to help people. And this business about expecting everybody to know how to go on the computer. Yep. And make application has got to stop. I, I we was have li- too I many communities li- that are not computerized.
3: Congresswoman, I was literally having a conversation today. with a brother, he was a businessman out of Atlanta. We were playing golf and we were talking about COVID. And I said, COVID exposed so much in this country it exposed uh people to to understand that for those of us where it's second nature to have a computer and three ipads and two iphones and oh my goodness we got uh 250 megabits per second up and down uh you know wi-fi that's not a whole lot of people and yeah the people go hey sign up go online and the people going what are you talking about and i remember doing one of the debates. A lot of black people got mad when Biden made this comment uh, about uh, uh, African Americans and others not being able to go online. People are like, oh, Biden's saying, uh, we don't know how to go online. No, what he's saying is, there are places where they don't have Wi-Fi. Well, they can't afford to actually do it. There are rural places in this country where they can't. And yes, there are a lot of people, it's just simply, they're not walking around with smartphones. Hell, their most advanced phone is still a flip phone. And so we gotta stop being, let's just be clear, tech technology snobs and arrogant and somehow assuming that everybody knows how to use this stuff when they simply don't.
4: And what we've got to do is, when we have these kinds of efforts, we've got to make sure that we have opportunities for people who are not computer literate, who don't use computers. When, you know, I think about a lot of the grandmothers that are raising their grandchildren and they're doing everything that they can, uh, but they can't get on the computer and go online and do these applications. And we found that out with the children who were uh, out of school and you know these middle-class, upper-middle-class communities were doing homeschooling, and they were, uh, you know, dealing with the problem of the kids not being in school, but mother or fathers or relatives or whomever would help with doing the the education that was needed uh, while they were not in school by homeschooling, et cetera. Do you know how many poor families, how many families of color? Uh, did not have the opportunity to do the homeschooling in the way that they were saying this was the alternative with the kids not being in school and so that gap is going to be felt and unless we have you know strong summer schools and I don't know what's happening with Delta uh, if in fact uh, you know the schools are going to be able to work and to do what we want them to do uh, to educate our children without all of them being put at risk, we've got to find a way by which whatever systems we're developing for whatever problems that it is a dual system it's a system for those who use computers and who are computer literate and educated and all of that and those who don't necessarily have them or have access to them we've got to have a way for people to be able to manage their lives in this technology that we're all having to deal
5: with.
3: And, Congresswoman, for all the people out there, and let me just go ahead and say, all y'all out there who bitch and moan, the CBC, they don't do anything. This is a perfect example of what happens when you've got uh, a CBC member, a veteran like yourself, chair of a committee that deals with the money. What happens when you've got Younger CBC members who may not have uh, the leadership, but they are put, but they are using social media to dramatize the story. This deal does not happen, does not get extended, if it is not for the work of the Congressional Black Caucus.
4: Well, let me just tell you: for people who complain or criticize, they really don't have an understanding of the work that we are done. Work that is done uh, that. They don't see, they don't understand, they don't know about uh, the kinds of things that we are able to stop uh, that would be detrimental to our communities, the fights that we have in the back room, uh, the work that we do, the meetings that we hold. And, you know, I have stopped getting angry with people who don't know. I just do, uh, whether you know it or not. We just do it. All of our members of the Black Caucus are so committed uh, to ensuring uh, that we open up opportunities for fairness and justice. I created the first ever subcommittee on diversity and inclusion in the history of uh, of, of the Congress of the United States so that we can open up opportunities for not only careers uh, in financial services, but contracts and other kinds of things. We're dealing with the big banks. We got the MDIs, that is the minority depository institutions, our black banks and the CDFIs, the community financial uh, development institution. You know, what? we've gotten their money, not only in the PPP, But joining, we got another $12.5 billion that we're getting to them now. People don't know this. They don't understand why they're going to be able to get that loan from their community bank now that they've got resources. But we do this work. And like I said, I don't even get angry with people anymore who don't know it. We just do it, because this is what we're committed to, and this is what we're going to do. And this is how we were able to show what we can do as we have been dealing with COVID-19. And the way that we pushed for our PPP and the way that we pushed for additional unemployment benefits and the stimulus money and for people on the front lines, that was People of color being at the table in a real serious way uh, that was moving the agenda. We're going to keep on doing it, too.
3: Oh, and that's one of the reasons why And I can tell people, you know, I've been talking to CBC members specifically about how this COVID money is being spent, uh, what has not been going to black-owned media, and now all of a sudden, we tried to tell them, uh, you know, nine months ago, targeted plans. Target communities, no. Now all of a sudden they're trying to do that. And so yeah, CBC members are there and I've been talking to them directly and we're still uh, trying to uh, get these issues. So uh, great job, Congresswoman Maxine Waters and uh, the same goes to Congresswoman Cory Bush and all the other CBC members uh, who put the work in to get this more extended.
4: Thank you so very much for your coverage. Thank you so very much for your consistent unfolding the facts and helping people to learn as much as you possibly can about what is happening, what is going on, and who's doing what. I appreciate you. Thank you very, very much.
3: Congresswoman, thanks a lot. Take care.
4: Will do. Thank you.
3: All right, folks, let's go to our panel, Teresa Lundy, Principal Founder of TML Communications, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former Senior Advisor for the Environmental Justice EPA, Amisha Cross, Political Analyst, Democratic Strategist. Amisha, I want to start with you. I mean, this is... I mean again for the people who i'm telling it drives me crazy Uh, and i got no problem if people offer a real criticism if it's a substantive criticism but there are things that actually happen things that get placed into bills things that get removed from bills that people have no idea uh happens from cbc members and this is a perfect example of a lot of our people who are going to be impacted by this eviction moratorium ending. And now for this thing being extended, especially in the hardest hit areas of COVID, that is critically important.
6: Absolutely. I think that Congresswoman Maxine Waters took took it away, really, um, not only in describing the dire straits that were about to face, about to be faced by over 11 million people and being mindful that those were families, many of them single parents with young children, but also um, passing the book where it needed to go. This, yes, had a—Congress has a role, but we can't forget that the White House could do something. And I think that that got lost in part of the conversation. Um, in addition to that, we also have to remember that the states and local governments, in particular kind of screwed the pooch when it came to the COVID-19 relief funding that included monies for a lot of this, um, for, for a lot of these rentals and rental assistance. And that, those funds were never actually divvied up, regardless of whether the state was led by Democrats or conservatives. And, and I think that that's something that we have to hearken back on, whether it's okay, well, they didn't understand how to go about um, finding out who is actually qualifying or whether they didn't understand the paperwork or understaffed. All of those things were considerations that we should have had months ago um, in terms of conversation around COVID-19 and where the rest of that relief package would go not knowing how to utilize a form doesn't stop a person from getting kicked out of their home so i do think that there are some things that need to be done in terms of the divvying out of federal funds to the state and local government acknowledging the fact that many of them are already underwater in terms of the staffing issues they have but also their own computer literacy problems in many cases but beyond that i think that we have to really lean in on the fact that people like corey uh, worked so hard and i was out there i did spend a night um a night at the capitol as well where she really put a spotlight on the issue she had talked about it for a very long time i know on twitter there are so many people who argue that this was a last minute push it wasn't her and several others across congress have been making the claim and staking the claim for there needing to be something done before the deadline hit and people were going to be sleeping out in the streets that was the reality and i think that this goes to show again that activism matters, that protests matter, that showing who you are and what you stand for makes a difference. And that even in this very partisan um, political environment we happen to be in right now, we have to do something. And we have to remember that there are lives at stake. And in many cases like this, those lives included, included people in urban areas Rural areas, people like you said, who are often forgotten about, but often those who um, look like us—a lot of a lot of Black people. The majority of that 11 million happen to be people who were Black and Brown. But particularly Black communities across this country suffer the greatest when it comes to housing insecurity. We know that, and that's why you know the leadership of the CBC, that's why the progressives in Congress, that's why activists across this country have been pushing so hard to ensure housing equity because it goes beyond the stopgap, and I think that we have to also remember this. The pause for COVID-19 is a stopgap measure. It has been extended. However, people are still in the rears. People are in the rears and rent before COVID-19 hit. What happens once that stopgap is no longer available? There still has to be some level of congressional action. I think that Americans need to be waiting on that as well.
3: What, what Amisha just said there and what the Congresswoman said, uh, Teresa, I cannot be ignored. And that is while we also focus on local elections. So the, the members of Congress do their job, okay? Congresswoman Maxine Waters, she gets the money. But now the problem is governors and mayors, what the hell y'all are doing? County commissioners, what are y'all doing? This is why I keep trying to tell people how these things are all are linked. You can't divorce one from the other.
7: Absolutely. So it, it it comes to, and I, I agree with so much. Um, you know, my colleague uh, j- just ref- referenced to because when we talk about local and state elections we talk about the priorities. So some of them when you know again we're in pandemic so I know the business community in some areas have been on high alert. But then when we talk about the housing crisis and and when it's time for eviction moratoriums and to have that conversation and people getting kicked out of their homes, it becomes a very slippery slope because some of those funds would already allocated to other initiatives and programs without really seeing the need for the seniors and for those who may be at risk losing their homes and did not see the pandemic coming into fruition in, in hindsight. So there is a lot of important details that, that do happen even on the state level, but I think the opportunity here is for the governors, is for the mayors, and, and it's unfortunate that it's happening at the last minute. But there is something that needs to be done for these families in order to not only, one, keep them in their homes, but also to prioritize them with the with the right sensibility, legislation, and program funding that is necessary for federal government in order to do, for them to do their jobs as well.
3: You know, Mustafa, um, the point that I made to the Congresswoman, it's amazing how Congress loves to make excuses to help the poor. But boy, we can hook up the rich real quick.
8: Yeah, exactly. You know, each time that those who are already wealthy reach out, they get what they need. Of course, they have the lobbyists and they have the others who are there continually advocating for them. And then, of course, they have congressional reps who are continually advocating for them as well. You know, we knew this was coming. That's where I have a problem. You know, we knew the possibility of this actually happening. And for folks not to have their act together um, gives me pause. It gives me pause because we also know that there is a huge amount of money that's gonna flow, whether we're talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill or a number of these other bills that will be coming. So what are we gonna do to build real accountability to make sure that the states, the counties, and the local governments one, have the capacity, and two, actually follow through. Because if we don't have real talk, we know that they have held dollars before that were critical in protecting people's lives and helping to make sure that they had a foundation underneath of them, a number of different dynamics. We know that in this country, at this particular moment, right here tonight, over 30 million people are dealing with the digital divide, which was raised earlier. And we know that there are folks who can't or have not yet been able to utilize the tools that everybody else is using to kind of you know, get in and get their resources and so forth and so forth you know, and such. So we just gotta make sure that we're actually moving forward and making the, the investments, both on the human side and on the financial side, to make sure that this process becomes more efficient and more streamlined or our folks will continue to lose. And we just can't allow that to happen. And we can't allow it to happen, Roland, because we got folks who are literally getting kicked out of their houses in the middle of a pandemic We're getting people kicked out of their houses, um, dealing with these extreme heat events and other things that are going on. So folks are getting hit with these double and triple whammies that shouldn't have to go through this. And then, as the first uh, panelist shared, we also know what's coming in the sense that all this huge amount of debt that has been built up, that we've got to make sure that we're finding a way to relieve people of that. Um, So I'm looking forward to continuing to push on Capitol Hill and at the White House to do whatever I can and folks who are in my spirit to to try and make that change.
3: Well, one of the reasons why we are facing the situation we're facing right now is in fact is black folks don't get paid on the same level as white America, especially black women. Across the nation, black women make 63 cents for every dollar that white men make. It takes up to 19 months to obtain the same amount of money that their white male counterparts do in a year. Question is, how do we change that? How can we do that with public policy? How are we pressing corporations to do their part? Glenda Carr is president and CEO of Higher Heights for America. They, of course, uh, are here to uh, help Black women get elected to office all across the country. Uh, Glenda, have you glad glad to have you black on, back on on Unfiltered? So, so, this issue here, when we talk about EQUALITY IN AMERICA WHEN WE TALK ABOUT FAIRNESS WE TALK ABOUT FREEDOM WE TALK ABOUT SAYING LOOK IF I'M DOING THE JOB PAY ME THE SAME WAY YOU PAYING THE CATS OVER HERE um, AND WE SEE HOW BLACK MEN ARE IMPACTED AND HOW BLACK WOMEN ARE IMPACTED AND AND WHEN WE BY TAKING 19 MONTHS TO MAKE THE SAME THEY MAKE it IN 12 MONTHS That's what happens, how you're never able to catch up, which impacts the ability to afford your rent, to afford daycare, to be able to to buy cars, to be able to save money, be able to build wealth. This is the economic downfall of Black America.
1: Absolutely, I mean, this day um, reminds us that Black women work as hard as our counterparts and we are paid less. And, Roland, be clear, that is Black women who are working in um, hourly wage jobs to women that are working, Black women that are working in the C-suites. When you say 19 months, right, that is 579 days more in a year. And you're exactly right. You know, I you know pinned an op-ed uh, um, that ran on BET.com today, and it talked about, if we actually got our, you know, paid the whole dollar, <laughs> not just the 63 cents, it's two-and-a-half years of child care we would be able to pay in our current job. 156 more weeks of food. When we're talking about um, the moratorium on rents, Black women disproportionately are evicted at a higher rate. Uh, If we were paid our whole dollar, that is 22 more months of rent. And in a lifetime of being paid less, um, it's the the inability for um, Black women to build wealth.
3: And so, from a policy standpoint, how do you change it?
1: Well, you know, at Higher Heights, one of the things I think we need to do is ensure that we're electing leaders that come from similar lived experiences. When we elect women, working women, mothers, Women of color and Black women—they bring those lived experiences to city halls across this country, state legislatures across this country, and Congress um, to be able to talk about why a wage disparity matters. Um, you know, when Kamala, Vice President Kamala Harris, was in the Senate, she championed the—you know—the the pay. Um, PayChair, Fairness Act, Ayanna Presley, um, Brenda Lawrence, all the 26 Black women in Congress. This is an issue that they champion. Uh, New York Attorney General Tish James, uh, who's in the news on something else today, right, Roland? Um, Certainly as the public advocate of the New York City, you know, used her pulpit, her bully pulpit, not only to talk about fair wages for city workers, but also was able to use her influence um, in that office. Um, And so Black women elected leaders have been leading the way. From a public policy perspective, but we also have to talk about how our private, um, you know, private industry can ensure that um, Black women are paid um, fair wages. But frankly, also talk about in um, the the private sector about the transparency. Oftentimes, women don't know they're being paid less. So having some transparency um, in um, in um, knowing what wages are be clear. Um, you know, Black women want what our, our counterparts want. We want economically thriving, educated, healthy, and safe communities. And so, for everyday Black women, um, it is us not only calling out when we're not being paid a fair wage, um, but also levying and lobbying our, our elected officials on the importance of how we can intersect public policy into this um, very important issues for Black women.
3: But, but let's just talk about again, from a corporate America standpoint. Um, you know, one of the things that I have been engaged in with others is this effort of uh, targeting companies when it comes to their expenditure, with black owned media. And, it, and it's really interesting, Linda, to talk to people who black folks who uh, who will say, why are you all doing this? I'm like, well, first of all, most of y'all who saying that don't own a damn thing. So you're used to getting a check. You're not used to endorsing the check. There's a difference. The thing that I, that I keep trying to explain to folks is that we're not going to change this by allowing companies to continue to give us aid. No, it's investment in terms of contracts. It's in, in terms of pushing pushing that. So now all of a sudden when we start talking about how, how do we break through, it means, no, we're not interested in, the, you know, the 50000 the $100,000 contract, when over there they're signing the multi-million dollar deals. They're signing the three and five and 10, the 100, 200, 500 million dollar deals. That's how you begin to change the dynamics and change the game.
1: In addition to our, polit- I agree, our political power, recognizing our economic might as African-Americans, but particularly black women, we are the economic drivers in this entire economy. Um, and so when, when you talk about building wealth and being paid our fair wages, we actually rotate those dollars back into the economy, which means we're lifting, not only is our unpa- you know, underpaid work building this new America, but we are then putting that money back into this America. Um, and so Black women need to, at this time, demand our return on our investments, right, our economic investments, our our trips to the voting booth. Um, and we certainly, as we rotate those dollars, into the community, um, into the economy, we need to be rotating those dollars into our own black businesses um, and building our own businesses. As you are aware, black women have started more small businesses than anybody else in this country. We've decided to leave the workforce to build our own work, um, you know, to build our own, um, our own, um, our own companies. The problem is, as you know, we then are not invested in or do not have access to capital. So this notion of even when we go and build our own businesses, we are still being um, given less money or lent less money. So we have to know our own worth and knowing that we are the economic drivers and part of that economic drivers then is we ought to be getting being paid fair wages.
3: All right then, um, look, we certainly appreciate you joining us. I, I wanna take, uh, if I can real quick questions from each one of our panelists. Uh, Teresa Lundy, your question for Glenda Carr.
7: Yes. Uh, Well, one, thank you for standing up for women's rights. Uh, Myself, I became an entrepreneur because of the equal pay and the gap that exists. So one of my questions is, um, what can women do in the workplace to ensure that they are receiving equal pay for
1: fair work? I I would offer three scenarios, right? One is walk-in when we're negotiating. Um, Women often under-negotiate. Um, when we're um, entering into the workforce, and certainly, I think Black women um, oftentimes are positioned to think that we, you know, we should be think like we should be uh, we should appreciate the job, but we need to walk in and 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 demand being pay our paid our worth. Um, I think it's important to do that investigation to see where the pay raises are, and to 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 literally call that question, may it be to HR or to senior management. Um, and I certainly think that this is a public-private. Um, solution that we need to look at the the, the very policies that we can um, enact on the local, state, and national level. But I do think that 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 we have to 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 call our our public sector, our private sector to the table around how do we how do we create transparent and fair wages in this country.
6: Amisha. Um, thanks for being here. I agree with you 100% and have um, read your op-ed. It was very strong. Um, my question is going to be around, as we know, not only do Black women hold the majority of small businesses across this country, but Black women also are the highest degree population in this country. With that comes a expensively high amount of student loan debt. That is also the highest in the country for Black people and and people in general um, at the behest of Black women. So when we talk about this pay pay gap, there's also taken into consideration um, digging out of that massive student loan debt. In, in your view, how do Black women, regardless of the stage in their career that they are in, um, advocate for themselves in in these career spaces, be it whether they are in nonprofits or government or or the private sector, in regards to not only equal pay but actually finding out, because in many cases they just don't know what other people are making within that within that same uh, within that same organization, because as you mentioned earlier, a lot of that isn't even posted when you actually interview for a job. So, at what point are they um, given that? That information and how can they best empower themselves and other black women or women of color to advocate as well?
1: That's a great question. I will actually answer something that you didn't ask, but it was a perfect um, segue into the discussion about public policy, which is black women, and we have to look at um, the intersectionality of all these issues, right? So, not only are we not paid the same at, um, for equal work, uh, we actually are coming with more financial burden, right? We are oftentimes the breadwinners of our household. We are taking care of not only maybe underaged children, but also we are taking care of um, someone in our family, maybe our, our our parents, or our grandparents. And then you add on student loan debt, that we are disproportionately are carrying a higher, like, financial burden. Um, And so, as we look at a solution, it needs to be intersectional. Um, So, I um, wholeheartedly agree with you. We can't just look at this as a one a one-stop shop from a policy perspective. But certainly, I do think um, there's a book that I uh, was given when I graduated from college years ago <laughs> called Success Runs in Our Race by George Frazier. And one of the things I think, when you talk about navigating um, uh, our careers, may it be in, you know, the entry point, middle career or um, in your, you know, as a, as a professional, uh, that we need to utilize our networks more as African-Americans and being able to have oftentimes our white counterparts do know how much um, others are making in a, in a company or in, um, in an organization and so certainly I think uh, as we build power from the voting booth that we're building power in in, um, in corporate America that our, that the best resource is actually utilizing not only our networks um, informal networks but also identifying our mentors and our sponsors that will help us to navigate um, in this second phase of our um, our access to to um, jobs across the country.
8: Mustafa. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, What should black men be doing to to better support um, our sisters who are fighting to make sure that they have equal pay?
1: Yeah, I mean, one. This conversation is important. Oftentimes, you know, you hear about equal pay day, and equal pay day uh, is in usually late March, early April for women, white women and Asian women. Um, and so, certainly, as as you know, today is equal pay day for Black women. It's August, but our um, indigenous women have to work into September 8th. Our Latina sisters have to work into October 21st. Um, so, I definitely think it is a cross-ethnic coalition. And, certainly, I think um, men of color and Black men um, play a pivotal role in knowing that there's a wage, wage, wage disparity. And although we're talking about the wage disparity between Black women and white men, there's a wage disparity between Black women in Black men. Black men make more, on average, than uh, th- than Black women. And so I certainly see Black women being the ally to begin having the conversation, um, being able to call out in a private sector <laughs> that, 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 that the sister is making less. Then uh, he is, and may may have more credentials, right? This is also, and oftentimes, women are more credentialed, have more career um, experience, and still are making less. Um, and certainly, I think you know, standing together to call for legislation across this country, both in Congress and to our city halls and state halls across this country, is important because at the end of the day, when you pay black women their equal pay, all boats rise. Um, and so, helping black women. Black men are helping to help our community be economically thrive.
3: All right, Linda Carr, we still appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. All right, folks, gotta go to a break. When we come back. Let's talk about Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. Ooh, did Tish James, the attorney general, drop the hammer on him when it comes to sexual harassment? We're gonna give you all the details. Also, uh, uh, on today's show, we'll talk about. Uh, our marketplace segment, uh, the issue of growing businesses, women entrepreneurs, but also why are people upset with Jay Z and Will Smith for investing 165 million dollars into a company. Hmm. We'll break it all down for you right here on
2: Roland Martin Unfiltered. White Supremes ain't just about black folk. Right. We gotta deal with it. It's injustice. It's wrong.
9: I do feel like in this generation we've got to do more
6: around being intentional and resolving. Conflict. You and I have always agree. Yeah.
2: But we agree on the big piece. Yeah. Now conflict is not about destruction.
6: Conflict's gonna
8: happen. Before Till's murder, we saw struggle for civil rights as something grown-ups did.
5: I feel that the generations before us have offered a a lot of instruction. (music) Organizing is really one of the
10: only things that gives me the sanity and makes me feel purposeful.
8: When Emmett Till was murdered, that's what attracted our attention.
7: Vivian Green hey
2: everybody this is your man Fred Hammond and you're watching Roland Martin my man unfiltered
3: all right folks after a five-month investigation into sexual harassment claims against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo the state's Attorney General Leticia James released a report corroborating his accusers
0: stories The independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. Further, the governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story, her truth. Governor Cuomo's administration fostered a toxic workplace that enabled harassment and created a hostile work environment where staffers did not feel comfortable coming forward with complaints about sexual harassment due to a climate of fear and given the power dynamics.
3: But Cuomo, who requested the investigation, says, despite the report, he has done nothing wrong.
2: No, directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. I am 63 years old. I've lived my entire adult life in public view. That is just not who I am. And that's not who I have ever been.
3: Investigators spent those five months speaking to nearly two people, including staff members and some of those who made complaints against Cuomo. Thousands of documents, texts and pictures had to be reviewed as part of the inquiry. James says there's evidence Cuomo and his senior staff worked to retaliate against a woman who accused him of harassment.
0: There were attempts to undermine and to politicize this investigation. And there were attacks on me as well as members of the team, which I find offensive. And our focus, again, should be on the bravery and the courage of these 11 women and of the others who came forward. These allegations were substantiated. They were corroborated. And the team before you, Ms. Clark and Mr. Kim, are professionals who are widely respected, not only in New York, but all across this nation. And uh, I support their work, will defend their work. And I believe these women. We were tasked with the responsibility of engaging in an investigation. And we have concluded our investigation, um, and our work is done. And so as, as, a, as it relates to next steps, that's entirely up to the governor and or the assembly and the general public, but the work of the office of the attorney general and these special deputies has concluded, The issue, we were tasked with the responsibility by the governor of the state of New York to issue a report and we have issued this report. And all throughout the process, we put our heads down. We've done our work. And at this point, the chip lab, we're going to allow the chips to fall where they may.
3: President Joe Biden was asked about this story at today's new White House news conference. This is the question and his response.
5: I have a question for you
6: on coronavirus, but first I'd like to start with the news of the day, given back in March, you said that if the investigation confirmed the allegations against Governor Cuomo, Then he should resign so will you now call on him to resign given the investigator said the 11 women were credible
10: i stand by that statement
6: are you now calling on him to resign yes and if he doesn't resign do you believe he should be impeached and removed from office
10: let's take one thing at a time here i think he should resign i understand that the state legislature may decide to impeach i don't know that for fact i've not read all that data
6: and he's using a photo of you embracing him in his self-defense to say that these are commonplace kind of embraces that he made in the allegations against him. Do you condone that?
2: Look, I'm not going to fly spec this. I am sure there are some embraces that were totally innocent, but apparently the attorney general decided there were things that weren't.
6: Iris, if I could ask you a question about the evictions.
3: All right, let's so bring in my panel here, Teresa Lundy, uh, of course, Mustafa, as well as Amisha Cross. So, Teresa, you in communications. You saw the governor's response. Can, what does he do next?
7: Admit to the American people that he has done wrong and, and apologize uh, continuously to these women and remove himself from office. That's the only thing that he can do. It's not like he's hurt. Um, he's made a book. Um, he's, you know, and millions of dollars have been. Look, he has a legacy. I think this is the the right time to get out. Um, you know, knowing that these allegations are against him. That and but there is no more room for him to really stand on the sidelines to say it is not me. It is, you know, it's not my intentions anymore. But it would be him showing massive leadership to him and his standing and his legacy and his policies to show what he has done, not only in the pandemic, but prior um, as governor. But again, his allegations can't be ignored. So the only thing he can do right now is bow down and bow out of that leadership position to allow somebody else who doesn't have that type of scrutiny to lead the office with integrity.
3: Uh, one of the things that also jumps out here, um, uh, Amisha, is um, Andrew Cuomo's brother, Chris Cuomo, uh, host on CNN. According to this report, uh, Chris Cuomo uh, actually helped Andrew Cuomo. Um, he, first of all, he participated in strategy calls with his brother and helped craft his response to the sexual harassment allegations should he be removed off the air of CNN as a result of this report?
6: I think that that's going to fall. That's going to fall into the prevy of what CNN um, decides is a workplace violation and what isn't. I think that when it comes to family matters, there are a lot of people who will try to protect their siblings, their parents, and whomever they're related to by blood, um, even if it means doing some things that are probably not up to par with um, with values of any sort. And I think that that's what we saw with, um, with Chris and Andrew Cuomo. The big issue here for me isn't whether or not his brother is going to get caught up by CNN as much as it is, well, actually, I don't think that um, Cuomo should have been allowed to even interview his brother on CNN during the duration of this process, but we saw that that happened regardless. The issue for me here is that everything that Cuomo was accused of doing, people knew he did for years because the 11 women who came forward and who are presented in that 165-page document um, from Letitia James's office, these are women who had most of their groping, most of the inappropriate comments. All of those things were done in the public eye, in a public face. So other people were easily able to corroborate said stories because he didn't do a lot of this stuff in private. There was a level of emboldenment that comes from specifically and, and his apology was horrible at best. but um, and it was a semi-apology he wasn't really sorry about anything but he doesn't want to admit to any wrongdoing and I think that that's problematic because there are so many people and such a trail of of basic of basic indecency that he did for years in that office. We know that there's a statute of limitations on these cases. Um, in particular, I think it's three years. Right now, we're looking at a, a situation where there can still be some civil suits that these women could bring against uh, against the governor. But I do I agree with what was previously said. The smartest thing for him right now would be to resign. His legacy is already tarnished. That's over and done with. He will never be able to run for anything else, and nobody is going to remember him for anything beyond these very egregious sexual harassment claims. But beyond that, I think that there are a lot of people who also should fall on their sword because Andrew uh, Cuomo, like many others who are in higher office, do this to women all of the time and other people around them see it, whether it is their executive staff, whether it was people who are fundraising with them, be it whether it's other uh, other Democrats who are high-level officials a lot of the things that he did and he said they took it as an old boys club and they were fine with it. And he continued to do it over and over with years under his belt of being a sexual aggressor. And I think that we should all come to grips with understanding this this climate of workplace intolerable behavior that was funneled through that office, but also one that he had built and it became part of his facade. That was part of the Cuomo essence to be aggressive towards women. And I think that we can't talk about this story without talking about the fact that Cuomo is that guy, and Cuomo was known as that guy, and everyone knew it for decades, and it is just now that he is finally about to face the music.
3: So, it was quite interesting, um... It it was quite interesting, Mustafa, to see Andrew Cuomo's response include photos of President Joe Biden, President Barack Obama, um... Hugging and kissing women. This, this is uh, right here. This is literally what he included in his uh, response. Uh, these are some of the images right here. Uh, dude, you're the one who's facing the allegations. You're not. You're not facing allegation that you hug somebody. You're facing allegations that you groped and sexually harassed women, and they retaliated against them for complaining.
8: Yeah, he was just trying to be slick with it, you know, trying to say, well, see, they did it and it, it wasn't misinterpreted. So this is just a misinterpretation of my actions. You know, when you got 11 people and there may be more uh, who are saying that you did these types of things. When you have law enforcement who are a part of your detail, who says the, that you did these types of things, when you have staffers, when you have all these other folks, then, you know, th- those commonalities usually lead back to something. Now, we know everybody is entitled to their day in court, but the reality of the situation is it's not only should he resign, but he should also get help, because sometimes we don't talk about that enough, that, you know, he's still going to be walking around on this planet for a while. So he needs to go actually get help to, to not just understand what he did and why he did what he did, but to stop and make sure that it never happens in the future. And sometimes we don't make sure that we call that out enough when we're dealing with men. So yes. They should lose your job or lose these other types of things. But you also got to make sure that you're doing something to make sure that you are healing so you don't continue this type of behavior and hurt anybody else. Because these ladies, you know, they've got to carry this for the rest of their lives. Sexual harassment is, is a serious thing. And sometimes we'll say, well, if somebody wasn't raped, it's not that serious. Yes, it is serious because you are hurting somebody both in the, on, the, on the spiritual level and on the physical level and the mental level. So he has a responsibility to actually make sure that he never does anything like this again.
3: Well, of course uh, he had made clear he was gonna be running for a third term. The question is, will that continue? Uh, His poll numbers have been dropping and so uh, we'll certainly see what happens next. Well, let's talk about uh, Florida where five Miami Beach police officers face first degree battery charges for allegedly using excessive force during the arrest of two black men. Delanta, Crudup and Collette Vaughn. It took place at a South Beach hotel. Check this out. Now, this is surveillance video. It shows an officer chase Crudup into the lobby of the Royal Palm Hotel. The officer ordered Crudup onto the ground at gunpoint. And then Crudup complies. Moments later, more than a dozen more officers flood into the lobby surrounding Crudup. The cops then slammed Crudup's head on the ground and began to kick him violently. Y'all, that's a lot of cops for one person. All of this happened because officers claimed Crudup struck a bicycle patrol officer while driving a scooter recklessly now, during Monday's news conference, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundo walked through what happened when officers caught Vaughn using a cell phone to record Crudup's
5: arrest. Four ...steps back with his camera. Now you see Officer Sabatier uh, running in and tackling him there. Yeah. What happens next? I'm sorry, but it's all we have. It's what it is. So, if you could play that, George, please. Now, what you see, there's a series of punches in the back rib rib cage area or kidney area. It's on the back. You see that there? See that there? They're different videos of the same thing, so that's why it seems repetitive. You see it right there? Can you roll that back George, please? See the back there? That's Officer. It's a different angle using body more cameras at this point. Then, about five seconds in, later, I don't know if you can catch that there. See that right there? So, Sergeant Perez had, uh, who again, who kicked him, had then see him come
3: back around in just a second credit was facing several charges including aggravated battery of a law enforcement officer Vaughn was charged with resisting an arrest with violence and impeding a police investigation after reviewing the video footage Police Chief Richard Clements requested all charges against both men be dropped. State Attorney Rundle agreed and dropped the charges. Sergeant Jose Perez, Officers Kevin Perez, not related, Robert uh, uh, Sebester, David Rivas, and Steven Serrano turned themselves in on Monday. This Mustafa right here shows you, again, when you have thug cops, how they will attack folks, beat folks, and they thought we're going to get away with this, but it was that surveillance video and body camera footage that actually did them in. And every single, now granted, it's misdemeanor charges, every single one of these cops should be fired, including, and in fact, the, the state's attorney general, excuse me, the state's attorney complained that only one officer acted to pull one of the folk, one of the cops away, but the rest of them just stood around and watched them do what they do. All of them should lose their jobs.
8: I agree. You know, being a police officer is a privilege, and it means that you have to carry yourself in that way. We see far too many instances where folks are handcuffed, they got their hands behind their back on the ground, and then people want to you know continue to beat on folks and, and to put their lives uh, actually in danger. So this has to change. But also, you see police officers actually turn their backs, so they don't have to sometimes see what's going on. It's almost like some of these congressmen on Capitol Hill who say, well, I haven't seen the video yet. So I don't really know what went on. You know what went on. Twenty-one police officers moved into that space. The gentleman was already, um, you know, had his hands behind his back. Um, and they still continued to pile on. Then they started whipping on him. And then they moved to the other brother, who was recording it, because, they're like, wait a minute, we can't have this individual actually capturing what was going on. Of course, they didn't know that there were the other cameras that were also capturing these injustices that continue to happen. And that's why, if you don't want to be a police officer, Then don't be a police officer, you know, but you can't have this job and then continue to do things that you arrest other people for. And that's why you deserve to lose your job. And the folks who are standing around watching and not stopping these individuals from allowing this to further escalate, they also need to be, um, you know, they've they've got to deal with the consequences of that as well.
3: Um, Amisha, the state's attorney uh, said when the police chief saw the video, all he did was just put his head down on his desk. He was shocked and stunned by what he saw.
6: It is shocking, but not necessarily surprising. It was hard to watch, because as as you were playing that, the guy's head was literally bouncing up and down off of the floor. You have individuals who won. I don't know why all of those cops were called to the scene in the first place. That was a lot of people. Um, And and, and to the point that Mustafa made a moment ago, you have so many officers that were basically just standing around. At no point is anyone trying to stop the aggression or trying to de-escalate. Isn't that the whole point? That's what we hear in all of these cases, de-escalation. That's what you're supposed to do when you get on the scene they came to the scene and escalated. There was not any amount of violence that was occurring before they got there. And, and I think that it's, it's interesting because we always see in every case that these officers up charges when they're trying, um, they trying to eradicate their own, their own culpability and their behavior. They up the charges for those who they were trying to take in. Um, what, can be, what can we expect? We've seen the body cam footage. We saw the footage that was taken from, from the lobby area in and of itself. This was a strike force used against two people. And I think that it was extremely egregious, but it's also, when, when does this stop? Uh, you, you, you quoted the, um, the the chief being very disappointed in what he saw or thinking of it as unbelievable. No, sir, these are people you trained. These are people who come to work for you every single day. These are people who I'm sure this wasn't their first incident of random violence. Um, police officers who respond like this are police police officers who, just like anyone who assaults people in real life outside of the police uniform, these are people who have a consistent time of doing so. So they need to—it's not training. It's not a training issue. We already know that. It's not a training issue because this doesn't happen to white people. It is one of police abuse against those who are Black and brown. And we consistently see Black men, in particular, getting their heads beat in by these officers. And the question is, when when can we expect police reforms to actually happen? When? It, yesterday would be too, too far. We need these things to happen now because thank God those men came out of this situation alive, but far too many of our brothers do not.
3: Well, I'll tell you what, Teresa, we have seen um, Miami Beach have lots of problems in the past with thug cops.
7: We have. And it won't stop. We will continue to see, unfortunately, this um, injustice against civilians, um, against taxpayers and against Black men and women, um, until the justice system decides to do their part. And that is not only prosecuting many of the officers that we see in the videos continuously, but also reaching into their life savings, which is their pensions. So, I've been a, ben, a a big proponent of pension snatching for those officers who choose not to understand the law when it comes to uh, police um, um, civility and, and doing their jobs, because it's not like, again, when police are... Um, may be reprimanded at one uh, department, they just transfer to another and that violence continues and someone else is hurt. And ultimately it could lead in another lost life. So why, you know, uh, continuously, you know, just move the individual from, you know, department to department when we really need solutions from the justice department to do something holistically.
3: All right folks, an Indiana community activist is facing multiple charges in an incident where he was the victim in July 2020. Uh, Vaughn Booker was a victim of a racist attack at Lake Monroe. This video ended up going viral leading to charges against two white men involved. The Monroe County prosecutor declined to the decline the charges against Booker but requested a special prosecutor to oversee the case. The special prosecutor hit Booker with misdemeanor trespassing and felony battery charges. Booker says he's charged because he declined to participate in med- mediation that would have resulted in him signing a confidentiality agreement. And dismissing the charges against his white attackers, Sean Purdy and Jerry Cox. Uh,
8: I'm sorry, am I missing something, Mustafa? Really? We're missing justice. That's what we're missing to even allow uh, these charges to come up a year later. You know, that's why we still have these issues around creating safe spaces, especially in the outdoors because you have, you know, oftentimes there's no cameras around when you're in the outdoors, and you have these types of situations going on that, you know, make it where black and brown folks don't want to go into certain locations. So the other dynamic that you got going on here is, is that he also had white friends who were with him, and the white friends didn't catch any charges, although none of them should have gotten charges who was with Vox. So this is just another one of these dynamics where they try and balance stuff out. And if you don't do what they want you to do, if you don't want to sign off saying, you know, going through mediation and don't, you don't want to press charges and that kind of thing, then, then they come after you. And we've got to change that dynamic. And Roland, just let me add this. We also got to change the dynamics of the folks who are in these park services and those dynamics, because you find very few folks of color who are in that space. And often, You know, they they don't enforce properly, and then they often have the same sets of dynamics that go on with officers, just like we just saw, because you'll find that many of the folks who are in that space, they often are the ones that couldn't make it into the police force. So we got a whole bunch of work that we got to do. — Teresa.
7: I agree. Um, I think there has been, um, well, one, I'm grateful, again, that the-the Black man had, uh, some video footage in order to counter his narrative uh, against everyone else. But, again, the injustice ensues, and I'm hoping justice actually is done.
3: Abisha.
6: Well, Roland, white people have acted like they've owned the woods and and forest preserves and things like that for generations now. So I'm not surprised that there would be a scuffle when there's a a black man that Um, is taking his nature walk and enjoying his time with what the Lord has made as well. What I am very, very disturbed by is the fact that criminal charges were brought up against a man because he refused to basically sign away his rights outside of mediation. At the end of the day, he knew that what happened that day was wrong. He knew that what happened that day shouldn't happen to anybody else. And he is well within his rights to decide to press any type of charges he wants to against those individuals who acted as though they owned a property that was open to the public. I I think that, you know, we see in so many cases, Cases where these random altercations happen because white people stake their claim on public lands or anywhere there happens to be a black body present, and they decide to police it. And in this case, I'm so thankful that there was video footage because at the end of the day, um, th- this could have gone a lot worse And he wouldn't have had a leg to stand on, because when it is a black man facing uh, several white people at once, including those who were in his own party, who probably could have done more but did not, um, at the end of the day, things end up going in an entirely different direction. So I'm hopeful that he finally gets his justice, but I am, quite frankly, very disgusted that there were charges ever actually presented towards the person who was actually aggrieved here, not towards those who committed the acts of of, um, very atrocious violence here.
3: All right, folks. Got to go to a break before we do so. Our friends with seek.com, they are back.
4: Yo, this is Ziggy Marley. Catch my live performance on Seek.
3: Bonjour, you're watching us. Yeah. What's going on? This Quavo Rancho? Right now, you in the Huncho's world.
2: Please let the music play.
3: Uh, black-owned company founded by Mary Spio. Uh, they, of course, uh, have their virtual reality content uh, that you can actually see via their app Seat.com, but they also have uh, the product that they actually um, uh, sell. So y'all... Uh, so one of the products you can see right here, folks, uh, is uh, the, uh, their, the, their virtual headset that you see right here, which allows for you to actually see the content. Just simply place your phone uh, right in here, and then you can actually see a particular video. But remember, they also have uh, their great uh, headsets. And so uh, this is one, and actually they've actually a new color. So uh, you saw these before. We showed you these before. They're, uh, they're black and white, excuse me, they're black and gold uh, headsets, 360-degree uh, uh, surround sound. Uh, And so they sent me uh, their uh, uh, headsets, and I said, okay, cool. Then I opened this one, and y'all know I was like, okay, I like this one here. All gold. Now, you know, as an alpha, I love this here. And so this is their all gold uh, headset. Uh, and so, uh, it is absolutely amazing sound. The uh, the bass is incredible. Uh, just go to go to seek.com, seek.com, but use this promo code. It's R M V I P twenty one. Now we should have put it in the lower third, please. Uh, the promo code is R M V I P twenty one. Go to seek.com, and so when you uh, purchase either the headset or the VR headset. We also uh, get the cut of the proceeds so we certainly appreciate uh, Seek being, uh, returning as one of our uh, partners here at Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'll be back, uh, discuss uh, our Marketplace segment sponsored by Nextdoor. We'll talk about uh, Will Smith and Jay-Z investing $165 million uh, into a company. But why are some black people are upset, we'll talk with John Hope Brown about that. Then we'll talk with a sister uh, who uses Nextdoor to really amp up uh, her business with black entrepreneurs. That is next on Roller Martin Unfiltered.
2: When you study the music, yeah. you get black history by default. And so no, no other craft could carry as many words as rap music. I try to intertwine that and make that create the whatever I'm supposed to send out to the universe. A rapper, it, you know, for the longest period of time has gone through phases. I love the word. I hate I hate what it's become, you know, into this generation, the way they visualize it. Its narrative kind of like has gotten away and spun away from, I guess, the ascension of black people.
10: Floyd's death hopefully put another nail in the coffin of racism. You talk about awakening America, it led to
3: a historic summer of of protest. I hope our younger generation don't ever forget that nonviolence is soul force.
5: Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: All right, folks. Uh, of course, uh, welcome to our marketplace segment uh, sponsored by uh, Next Door. This is where we, of course, focus on uh, Black-owned businesses uh, every single uh, week. And so, uh, normally we have the stinger. We'll play that uh, after, before our next segment. Uh, and so, um, uh, there's some news that came out: Will Smith and uh, Jay Z. Uh, it was announced they were investing $165 million uh, into a company uh, that deals with. Um, Homes, a deal for, for, for renters. But what was interesting about that uh, is that a lot of people on social media took social media, and they were uh, highly critical uh, of this decision. And sort of shook my head and said. Well, why, what's the deal here? Uh, I was talking to my man, John Hope Bryant, founder of Operation Hope, and he said, you know what, let's talk about this uh, so we can really explain to folks what business is really about and how folks actually work. He joins us right now. So John, give folks the details of this investment and what it means uh, and and what really, uh, I won't say it ticked you off, but let's just say, caused you to say, "Mm, we need to actually have a real conversation in black America about business.
2: Yeah, so first of all, I love you, love you, Roland. Honored to be a supporter of the channel. And I mean that in a material way and not just aspirationally. I encourage everybody to do the same. Was, was lovely to see a black-owned company as one of your sponsors. More companies uh, need to do that. Uh, m- mainstream companies, certainly minority-owned companies. We, we need to it, buy our own block and invest in our own product. Um, you, you know, we, we, in my book, Up From Nothing, you and I have talked a lot about this, the different mentalities. You have a winning mentality, a thriving mentality, a surviving mentality, and a spectator mentality, And this is like spectators like on another thing because you look at this investment and it's really two different conversations. You read most of the press and it's Will Smith and Jay-Z have invested as part of a group and a rent-to-own company. Okay, Uh, I actually think, my God, two brothers firmly from the hood, have a venture capital firm in one hand and a private equity firm on the other? (laughs) That's fantastic. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing that we want? Don't we want that? And they're making their money legal and investing it? Uh, uh, Likewise, Um, that that, that memo got missed. (laughs) Folks on Twitter, at least where I saw, including a very notable person who I think is a historian par excellence, but uh, maybe we need, she, we need to talk about financial literacy a little bit, uh, went in on on Will and Jay-Z, and I can't figure out why. Uh, it's, first of all, I guess we were upset this was a white-owned company. Well, the company never said they were anything other. <laughs> they never said they were here to save black America. It's a rent to owned company, right? Uh, and there, it appears trying to do uh, affordable housing for low-income uh, people. There was an immediate assumption that this was a scam, that poor people are going to be, and poor black people are going to be abused. So you have this discussion in black America that's very, actually, cynical. And then if you look at all the rest of the press, I am encouraging everybody to watching this, don't trust me, do your own search. The rest of the press is just pretty straight ahead. couple of things, Roland. First of all, it wasn't just 100. This is not Will and Jay putting in 165 million dollars, as has been reported by our folks. They were part of an investment group. Right. Uh, number two. Yeah. Number two. W- 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 there's no, there's no bad reputation. And by the way, I think this company probably took a page out of one of my books for a company that I own that does something similar to what he's talking about. And I'm saying, as somebody who actually should be a little aggrieved by it, Bravo! I'm, I'm happy that he got the investment and he's, he's, he's doing his thing if it helps our people. Now, if they are found to be scamsters, if this company is found to be legitimate, we should be all over them like a cheap suit. But at the moment, it's just the perception that this company was doing rent-to-own and that somehow Jay-Z and Will Smith were manipulating our people. I, I actually... I can't figure it out. So, here, so,
8: here, so
3: here's a tweet that you're talking about. So this is the tweet right here that Nicole Hannah-Jones sent out on August 1st. Um, the story from The Root, Jay-Z and Will Smith invest in a company to help low-income folks go from renters to homeowners. She tweets, credit counseling is not what will take low-income renters to homeowners, wealth will. All this program does is charge struggling people additional fees for being poor, which is what every other predatory lender does. Now, that's now. It got that particular tweet, uh, uh, 3,000 retweets and uh, 16,100 likes. Now, th- this is what the story actually says. Landis Technologies raised165 million dollars to purchase 1,000 homes. It says the company purchases, the, according to Bloomberg, the company purchases a house and rents it to the client until they can qualify for a mortgage the client can buy it back at a predetermined price up to two years after the initial acquisition. As part of its service, Landis provides coaching for clients on how to manage their finances to improve their credit and save the amount they need for a down payment. Landis sets rents equivalent to its carrying cost on the home. It also charges a fee on top of the value of the property at the time of its initial purchase. If a client isn't ready to buy the home after two years, Landis may offer them more time or sell the property. Now, John, um, first of all, according to the company, they hope to convert 80% of the people from renters into homeowners. So let's, let's unpack this. Um, uh, Nicole says in her tweet, credit counseling is not what it will take low income renters to homeowners wealth will. You absolutely disagree with that because that's exactly what operation hope does it helps people first of all go ahead and explain it
2: yeah i mean this is, i mean that is again she's brilliant she's a, we we all know her from the 1619 project she's she's a historic i don't want to disagree with her because i actually highly respect her i'm actually she's on my reading list for next week but on this point she's just wrong um, it makes her family better i actually told mr bill gates he was wrong 2 weeks ago uh, at a meeting I saw him at. So I'm not discriminating. This, on this point, she's just respectfully incorrect. Uh, it is actually my story, Roland, as you well know, uh, that I got a financial literacy course in Conflict, California. Banker came in my classroom, and I raised my hand up to the second session and said, excuse me, sir, what do you do for a living? And how'd you get rich legally? <laughs> he said, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, sir, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you finance him and it's legal, I'm gonna be one. And that's who I am today after he gave me this, this incredible financial literacy course in home economics class. I now own 700 homes, just under that, from Atlanta and, and uh, to North Florida. I have a portfolio of businesses, founded an operation, hope you know the rest of the story, employing a few, a few hundred people. Because, not because I have the money, uh, but because I had knowledge in my head about money. In fact, let me, let Roland, let's flip this. If all we do, if people say, oh, we don't need, we, we don't need all this counseling thing, we just need money. Okay, I take all the money in the world, you and me, redistribute it to everybody in the world equally. Take the money from the top 3%, redistribute it to everybody equally. What will happen in three years? The top 3% will all it all over again. (laughs) If if nothing else changes. I'll go one step further. You you win the lottery. You stop and see a homeless guy on the side of the road. You want to help them because you won the lottery. All you do is give them a million bucks because you've got goodness in your heart. That's all you do? He'll be broke in six months. Because nothing changes here, nothing's gonna change here. Wealth is a mindset. There's a difference between making money, getting paid, getting that paper, getting that dollar, wanna make that money, which we are unfortunately, as black people, overly obsessed with, and building wealth, which is what you do in your sleep. Financial literacy helps you understand that. It also, the last debate we had on your your great program, this debate about home ownership. Where folks say, oh, black people, we don't own the home, the bank does. What are you talking about? Right? Right? No, the no, bank owns the cool. debt. They only sense. own a home if you default. You get the appreciation, the depreciation, which is good for your taxes. You write off, you get the write-off on every mortgage payment. We can go on and on and on. This is just an, a lack of understanding. Then there's good debt and bad debt, as we talked about before. This, so financial literacy is the one thing, Roland, we were denied. As you well know, you know you're know histor- you a historian yourself. Freedman's Bank, March 3rd, 1865, after the Civil War, we were given 40 acres, which is a pilot program, Field Action 15. Then we worked that so hard, we were given a mule, February 1865. The next month, Lincoln creates a bank called the Freedman's Bank to domicile our savings, teaches about money. So Abraham Lincoln, on the occasion of our being freed from enslavement, thought the most important thing he could do was to teach us about the free enterprise system and capitalism and ownership. And Lincoln was killed the next month. Roland, Frederick Douglass thought this was so important. In order to save the bank, he put $10,000 of his own money in the bank in 1865 to try to save it and try to run the bank. Unfortunately, it was gained and it closed in 1874. It's not like we got the memo on money and free enterprise and screwed it up. We never got the memo. So it's what we don't know that we don't know that's killing us. What we think we know. It's not like somebody gave us a memo on free enterprise and we messed it up. We keep talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma, as if it is really Wall Street. No, it was. It didn't produce capital. It didn't. It didn't issue debt. Uh, they, they didn't uh, uh, provide venture capital like Will Smith and Jay Z are doing right now. Uh, there's no. There was no banking infrastructure. There was no systemic uh, uplift of. Of, of tens of thousands of jobs it was a wonderful example of a normal community <laughs> where you have homeowners and small business owners and entrepreneurs it was just normal but we want to call it Black Wall Street. this is how messed up our situation is That should have been the case in every community in America
3: so John but, when you, so John when you when, again so when, when she says credit counsel is not what it would take low, low income renters to homeowners I'll talk really well we' we'll, the, the, the the reality is this John um, and, and y'all have done it if you right now, have and let, let's just again walk people through. If you right now have a credit score of 500, and you're going to have a much higher interest rate if you try to get try to get you a mortgage. But if but, but if but if you but if you work with through credit counseling, what Operation Hope does, and move that to 700, that changes the interest rate on the mortgage, so actually the credit counseling does help you because if you can, go go ahead.
2: Yeah, there's nothing that changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points, all right? I mean, nothing. My my mother's credit score is 854. My mother's not black, she's green. My mother worked an hourly job, so not only was that tweet by her incorrect about my life, which I just mentioned, is also incorrect about my mother's life, who worked an hourly job and bought and sold seven homes, seven, because her credit score is to a point where she cannot be, if you have a credit score of 800, even 750, no one's gonna tell you no for anything. By the way, all of the problems in our neighborhoods, as you know, Roland, are in 500 credit score neighborhoods, by the way, where you see a check casher next to a payday loan lender, next to a -a rental-owned store, next to a title lender, next to a liquor store and a pawn shop. Andrew Young said that, that to live in a system of free enterprise and not to understand the rules of free enterprise, Must be the definition of slavery. So yes, credit score, half of black folks have a credit score below 620. Fact, half of us. So while we think the bank may be discriminating against us on race, and maybe they are, the likelihood they don't even need to go that far. Your credit score does not allow you to buy a home at a prime rate at 600. You can get a a Homeboy Shopping Network mortgage, as you're saying, a a, a, a 21%, a 15%, Mortgage, which will, on $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 a house, will make your wallets explode. But if you can get your credit score rolling up to 680 through Operation Hope Coaching, which, gets, which which raises credit scores 54 points in six months, 120 points in 24 months, you get your credit score up to 680, your mortgage goes down, to, I don't know, probably 7% in the current environment. You get your credit up score up to 710, the mortgage is 3%. That's like them giving you money.
3: So, so, so again, for the person listening, so if you increase your credit credit score to go from seven percent to three percent, means again, how much you're paying on that mortgage, you're paying less. I, I, I want to bring this. So, and I do want to get your take on this here because this is what the story says that the company will purchase a house, rent to a client. So basically, you as a cl- you're moving into a home that you will have. Yeah, work with you two years to buy. Now, it says Landis is going to uh, uh, charge a fee on top of the value of the property at the time of his initial purchase. So we don't know what that that fee is. But what this is, but what, we don't. But what this is saying is, what they're basically saying is, we're going to acquire the home. We're going to give you two years and work with you to get your finances in order, credit score improved, for you to be able to buy the home. I don't know of many other programs that, that will allow you to a sense, if you're low income to move into a home, we're gonna help you try to buy it and then you have a shot to buy it after two years and then the two years passes, they might give you more time. I'm trying to understand again how this is attacking the poor.
2: Well, no, it is, it's not it's attacking clicks on the internet. <laughs> it's what it is. I mean it's just it's, it's just I mean it just created this firestorm of conversation, it reminds me of the two hobos. This is a Jesse Jackson story, rolling. The two hobos got kicked off the trade. They're upset about it for non-payment. One hobo said, man, I'm so upset. I think I'm gonna buy this here trade. The other hobo said, yeah, I'm upset too. I'm gonna sell it to you. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Both of them so broke they can't pay attention. They're talking past each other about something, about a, a situation that nobody is paying them any attention on. The train is gone. The train in our neighborhood of home ownership is leaving, and we're having ridiculous debates. Uh, gentrification, which is a conversation that you know we should have at some point, is really just a movement of middle class values. Why aren't we buying uh, the house with the tree in it in our neighborhood? Buy it, rehab it, rent it, and own it. Buy it, rehab it, rent it, or, or buy it, rehab it, and live in it and watch that equity go up for ourselves. That's a whole nother conversation, but real estate values are doing nothing but going up. And that's been the case since the beginning of time. So put that issue aside for a moment, to your point. The answer is yes. It's a very unique program. And I'm talking about somebody, theoretically, Roland, I'm their competitor. I'm sorry, theoretically, they're my competitor. Theoretically, I could say that capital that should have gone to me, I'm the largest in the country as a minority, went to uh, to this company through, through two notable uh, investors i'm not saying that roland i'm saying this bravo we need as we, we need as many folks out here trying to help folks come up as possible as long as it's honorable ethical it's, com- it's done in complete plain sight this seems to be very transparent i i actually don't know of many programs that does this i would have done it differently i would have you know been more i think more elegant about how we integrate the services and been more transparent. Is the credit credit counseling free? Mine is, and all that kind of stuff. But I do like, they do say, Roland, it's all up front. Here's what the price of the house is gonna be. Here's what the fee is that we're gonna charge you up front. Here's what the predetermined purchase price is gonna be two years after. And if you need more time, we'll give you more time. Now, if you don't like the deal, you walk away. You find a better deal, you go do the deal. Uh, But from what this they're saying, this is saying, and they say that the rent will be based on their carrying costs, there's an assumption here that's gonna be also at market. In other words, the rents will be at market rate. But if it's not at market rate and you're getting a bad deal, leave.
3: (laughs) Sounds pretty basic to me.
2: John Hope Bryant,
3: founder of Operation Hope. Always a pleasure, thanks a bunch. Radical movement of common sense. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Okay. All right, folks, time for part two of Marketplace. <music> All right, folks, uh, let's talk about uh, our next guest, where, of course, uh, they have uh, this initiative called The Audacity Women's Initiative. It helps black entrepreneurs reduce overhead and increase their profits. Co-founded by Ashley Osborne Watts. Ashley, first of all, what is this? What are y'all doing? How y'all helping folks uh, uh, run their businesses?
9: First off, let me just say thank you, Mr. Martin, for having me and giving me access to your platform to discuss what we have to offer. Thank you. Appreciate Uh, it. We are the Audacity Women's Initiative, a local group here in the Jackson, Mississippi metro area. We're here to connect all black women business owners together to be able to uplift, to be able to encourage, motivate, and also give them a space for them to be able to come to and conduct their businesses.
3: Okay, so... When you talk about, again, this is one of those things that people don't quite understand uh, about businesses. When you talk about, hey, overhead, profits. There are a lot of people who have great ideas, not understanding. Everything is an expense uh, when you have a business.
9: You better know it. (laughs) Yes, sir. Um, So we offer a space where you can come in. You need to take product pictures. You need to have a business meeting. You need to have an event. That's what we are here to do. We are here to help you with that. You don't have to worry about your electricity, your gas, your Internet connection. We have all that here at a low cost. And that is the purpose of us.
3: How have you, first of all, how long have y'all been, um, um, how uh, long have you had this initiative?
9: Since March of 2021, the pandemic showed us that, hey, a lot of our black women had to get back into the house because the kids came home. So what were we to do? Okay, we had to close our doors. That left open a market for us to open up a business where they can come in and actually use the space. We don't, they don't need it all the time, but we have that space for them when they do need it.
3: And so um, you're on the Nextdoor platform, and, and how are you utilizing that uh, to connect with other entrepreneurs and to provide your services for them across the country?
9: You know, the Nextdoor app was a godsend. It really was. It helped me connect with the different neighbors around our neighborhood and in the local area. So we had a community service event actually not too long ago, July 17th. Martha's Vision, it was a great event. We had um, health, wellness, but we also had a lot of our local business owners here Conducting business out of the spaces that we provided, and we were able to connect with the different people around our area to let them know what we had going on, and also to connect with other different businesses so they could come and participate as well. So next door is something like a community for us. The same way we are a community for all Black women business owners.
3: Wow, let's uh, We've got questions from from my uh, from my guests, and of course, Teresa Lundy. Uh, you got your own business. Uh, I'm quite sure you've got a question uh, for our guests.
7: Yes. And, well, one, thank you so much for the idea. Um, I think one of my questions will probably be, um, how are you guys getting more so engaged with some of the CDCs or some of the workforce development programs, like banks, who pretty much do this for small businesses? Have you guys made a relationship? Um, And if not, uh, is that something you're looking forward to do?
9: I'm glad you brought that up And at our event on July 17th. We actually had banks come out. trustmark National Bank, Community Bank, all of our local bank, River Hills Bank. We we do believe in connecting with those people that can help bring the financial backup that we need for our local businesses.
3: Uh, Mustafa.
8: Yeah, well, once again, thank you for what you're doing. Um, you know, I've been trying to get black and brown folks to, to really pay attention to the contracting and subcontracting opportunities that this new administration, the dollars that are gonna roll out here sometime in the near future. Um, are you all helping to prepare folks to be able to engage in that market as well?
9: You're speaking my language. Actually, just last week, we had somebody come in, one of our actual, Miss um, Jana Green, she came in and actually did a class with a lot of our young women who are starting their businesses to show them how to get bids at the local level, the state level, the federal level, how to sign up to be a disadvantaged business, a minority-owned business. So yes, we are. We're actually connecting those new, fresh blood, like I like to call them, with our old heads, like I like to call them.
3: Amisha CROSS.
6: Hi, um, I have a couple of questions that I'm actually going to combine. Um, my grandmother and a lot of my family lives in Jackson in Burton Edition area. Um, With that in mind, I know a lot about the local area and a lot of the small businesses there. Is there a process that you have of actually um, partnering with or working with some of the local high schools in terms of funnels for entrepreneurship, as well as acknowledging uh, what has long been held in the state of Mississippi as the brain drain, where you have so many people who go to college there, but end up leaving as soon as they graduate because they don't see economic opportunities in the state?
9: Yes, actually, uh, we have not done that yet, but that is a great idea. I would love to partner with it because I'm from Jackson. I actually went to Tougaloo and Jackson State. Shout out to the HBCUs. Um, So, yes, that's actually a great way to connect with the people here. So I would love to actually deal in that. Yes, We we haven't dealt in that yet, but I would love to. If you have any suggestions, please feel free.
3: See, so all you gotta do is, uh, uh, Amisha, to hit her on the next door app, you're good. Yes, sir. Um, I gotta, I gotta ask you this here, Ashley. You talked about starting this in March 2021, and mm-hmm. and the thing here is again that a lot of people who were frustrated and stuck during uh, this whole COVID period, uh, and it, it caused you and others to say, no, no, we we gotta get creative in this moment and fill a void that. It's clearly exposed.
9: Yes, sir. Exactly. That was the main reason, like I said. We were I I looked around and a lot of my black women business owners lost faith. And that's the point of the group. We want to let them know that we are here to help you get through these hard times. It's tough out here. It really is, especially coming from being a black woman in the state of Mississippi. That's already difficult within itself. But being a black businesswoman, oh, we're talking something totally different at that point. So we are here to encourage, to uplift, and to give them resources that they need to not only thrive, but like the previous guest said, to win.
3: All right, then. Well, uh, we certainly appreciate uh, the work that uh, you do. And again, I, I said this with this segment we've done with other previous owners utilize free opportunities at your disposal, the ability to be able to connect with people just where you are via the Nextdoor app, I think is, is just is just crucial. And I, I, I can't tell you how people I run into who I tell them all the time, what are you doing? Why why are you not using social media to your advantage? Uh, it, it's free, it allows for you to be able to market your business as opposed to just hoping somebody's just gonna pick up the phone or walk through the
9: door. I agree. Is I'm glad we're in the social media era, because right now that is the way to connect. it's at your fingertips at all times. There is no more going door to door selling encyclopedias like my granddad did. There's no more of that. You can actually connect with your community. And why I like Nextdoor is you can connect with the community locally and you know who's in your area. And they're there just as like-minded as you are. And that's why I really appreciate that app.
3: All right, then. Well, Ashley, I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, where can people get more information? Is there a website for your uh, initiative?
9: Facebook at The Audacity Women's Initiative. You can also email us at theaudacity21 at gmail.com. Uh, thank you again, Mr. Martin, for extending your platform. Thank you guys to the guests for the questions. I appreciate it. You got my mind going, so thank you.
3: And are you, is it under your name or is it under the initiative's name under Next Door. Uh, the Audacity Initiative the next door, yes, sir. Okay, all right then. Uh, Ashley Osborne Watts, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, gotta go to break. We come back. Uh, book author talks about leaving America when Donald Trump became president. She said, I had to get the hell out of here. I'll be back in Roland Martin Unfiltered.
8: One of the most stressful days of my life was when this one got out.
0: I chased after her as best I could,
8: kind of fell over and broke my wheelchair. I was able to get back home and make a post. Within about five or so minutes, I had three or four different people coming to the rescue. One woman stopped traffic, just drove her right back to the house for me.
9: It was was a very emotional day.
5: Over a period of
9: 10 years, my neighborhood went from being almost 98% black to being
3: 98% white. So all of a sudden, oh God,
9: I'm the suspicious looking black man.
3: I posted on Nextdoor that I no longer felt comfortable walking in this neighborhood. The response I got was hundreds and hundreds of neighbors offering to walk with me. This experience
10: moved me and changed the way I saw humanity.
6: At Nextdoor, we come to work every day to help cultivate a kinder world. We want to make
5: sure that everyone has a neighborhood to rely on.
8: When we started this company, we felt that technology had an important role to play in bringing communities and neighbors together. We knew that
0: having the support of your neighbors was critical.
10: When I found out I was becoming a father, I panicked. What am I going to feed this kid? I posted, hey, any other gardeners who might have extra soil, seeds, equipment, and they came up from everywhere.
8: As human beings, we want a sense of safety and anything that gives us that sense of
2: connection. You drive through a neighborhood and you see houses and bricks, but really what you have is people business owners and entrepreneurs. We
1: know that the locals are what keep our restaurant going. When somebody says that they enjoy our restaurant, it brings us business.
6: It's been really cool being able to cheer on your neighbors as they open up the next coffee shop.
8: When Hurricane Harvey first hit Houston, I realized that Nextdoor was much more than just a day-to-day utility. It was a lifeline to the community. The neighbors have been using that Nextdoor app to coordinate evacuations.
2: When the pandemic started, people
0: did have the urge to help, but often they didn't know who to help or how. Our Nextdoor group took off explosively. Just after a year,
6: we had over 1,000 members. Nextdoor evokes a sense of pride in your neighborhood, and we know that people globally are craving for that. We hosted
8: our music video on the Nextdoor app.
6: A lot of people in the area liked it. And people are beautiful. Let's go to the beautiful. Keep rhythm for the vibes we
8: got. Stay on the drums. I think the video meant a lot to our
5: neighbors because it portrays the Cascade area in a positive lighting.
2: At the end of the day, and this is a business model about people <laughs> and neighborhoods and communities. Wouldn't it be beautiful to connect Wall Street to Main Street and to do well and do good at the same time? It's going to be the legacy of 2020 that Nextdoor put neighbors together for a cause and then forever.
5: Uh, Thank you very much. It often starts online, but we know that it continues
6: into the real world. And that is the superpower of Nextdoor.
3: All right, folks, time for our uh, book club. Okay. Y'all missed that. Y'all missed the stinger. Let me go right to it. All right. A lot of people, a lot of people said that uh, they wanted to leave America if Donald Trump became president. Well, guess what? Audrey Edwards did. She wrote a book called American Runaway, Black and Free in Paris in the Trump years. Uh, she and I sat down for a conversation about this book. So, Audrey, all right. So how how big of a deal was this black folks leaving America Uh, reminiscent of uh, folks doing so during Jim Crow.
10: Well, I don't know. I can't speak for all the folks, Roland. I can only speak for me. And I made um, a pledge kind of a threat the minute Donald Trump declared his candidacy that if anything as crazy as him winning was to happen, I would be gone. And that's what happened. He was elected. I couldn't believe it but I also knew I had to leave. I didn't know what was coming, but I knew what was coming was bad and I didn't want to be here.
3: So, so you sort of had you sort of had your Josephine Baker, James Baldwin moment.
10: I did. I did. And we all come to our moments differently. Circumstances are different. I knew as someone who does real estate in New York that Donald Trump had always been perceived as a joke just from a business standpoint. And I also knew this was a man who had never been elected to anything. He had never been homeroom monitor. He'd never been head of the glee club. He had never been elected to any office whatsoever. So for him to suddenly be the president of the most powerful country in the world, I knew my world as I knew it was about to come undone. So I hightailed it for Paris, the city I've Mm -hmm. always loved. Um, I knew people there.
3: Were your were, were your friends and others—I mean, were they shocked uh, that, that oh, yeah, you would follow through, people, follow through on this?
10: Yeah, a lot of people didn't believe me when I was making the threat. Um, and a lot of people didn't understand. You know, I have people who are not American-born. I have a good friend who was born in Honduras. I have a biracial friend who is half Vietnamese and half Black. Her father was an American Black soldier. She was born— um, you know, during the Vietnam War. And the Vietnamese people had a historical hatred for the French, because they had been there and occupied that country long before American troops came. So her attitude was, don't you know how racist the French are? And my attitude was, I know how racist America is, and I know it's about to become more so, and I'm out of here. So yeah, a lot of my friends, most of my friends didn't believe me, couldn't believe it. Um, But it didn't matter, because I'm a Taurus, and once I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And there was, you know, and and I really was at an age where I am a baby boomer, I came through the Civil Rights Movement, and I knew we were about to have some of the same struggles that we had 50 years ago. And I was just not up for it. You know, as they say, I wasn't having it, not at this age
5: and sure
3: should... obviously a lot of other african americans couldn't afford to make the decision uh that that you made and look and, uh, and the reason i cited uh, Baldwin and josephine josephine baker because for a lot of african americans today they don't realize the number of african americans especially entertainers um who fled uh to europe quincy jones uh people who saw the movie ray uh he talked about that Uh, You know, uh, spending some time uh, overseas, Uh, a number of artists and writers. uh, When I was reading uh, uh, Charles Barnett, uh, first of all, Gerald Horn's book on Claude Barnett, the Associated Negro Press, the number of African-Americans who literally left the country and who went to Russia and who went to Europe and other nations Mm -hmm. because they Mm -hmm. simply could not tolerate uh, Jim Crow
10: yes 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 and i think the artists and the entertainers have always been the renegades in our group the artists the writers are the thinkers they are the people who are often the visionaries they think outside of the box very often that's what writers do think outside of the box and in the case of expatriates they made a decision to move outside of the box so yes there was a history there was a tradition of Black Americans in particular going to Paris. And that history went back to World War I when Black American soldiers were sent to Europe and fought alongside French soldiers. And France sustained the biggest losses of all the European countries during World War I. And they really appreciated the courage and the valor of the Black American soldiers in particular because they knew what their struggle was in America. And here you have these young men coming to defend the freedom of France. And that was not lost on the French, that was not lost. So there was a kind of affirmation for black Americans by the French that didn't really exist in other parts of Europe. And there was a French appreciation for our style and our beauty, how we created music, how we walked, how we talked. Um, And there was a reciprocal appreciation on the part of black Americans. The French are very stylish. They are very passionate about their art. They've created great beauty in their architecture and in their clothing. So there was a symbiotic relationship between Black Americans and the French. That was the history, and it continues. It really does. There's still a large Black American expat community in Paris.
3: Yeah, I, I, that was a sister who did a who did a book uh, on that a number of years ago. I wrote a story on her. Uh, she was from Houston, uh, and she wrote a book about uh, the various um, uh, hot spots people would travel to, tourism hot, hot spots as well. Um, what? Um, so, how long did you spend, How did you spend in Paris? All four years?
10: No, I'll tell you something, Roland. I really thought I was going to be in Paris initially for three months. I really thought that the first one hundred days would be the beginning and the end of Donald Trump. I just knew in that litmus test of 100 days, America would realize a big mistake had been made and he would be gotten rid of. And I turned out to be very wrong. So once I I realized he was not going anywhere anytime soon and certainly not in 100 days, I then started thinking about how can I be here in a more permanent way? Do I put my apartment on the market? Do I open up a, bank, a French bank account? Do I get a permanent apartment as opposed to kind of the Airbnb I was living in? But the owner of that apartment I knew, and I knew I could stay longer. So I had to really kind of regroup and look at what is, what is the next four years going to look like. And what I encountered in the first winter being in Paris, the reality is that it was the coldest winter in Europe in 30 years, these old European cities do not have things that we take for granted, like central heat. So my first winter was spent in a tiny apartment being heated by a space heater. And I realized by year two, I could not endure Paris winters. Not only was it cold, it was rainy. And I'm from the Seattle area. And my attitude was, if I wanted rain, I would have stayed in Seattle. So um, I was back and forth for three years and then got sidetracked, like many people, by the pandemic. I came back for the winter and couldn't go back in the spring of 2019. So, so, Paris, I,
3: so Paris, is way too cold for you
10: it was way too cold and way too rainy the rain I mean, first of all it's not like Paris or Chicago or Minneapolis <laughs> I don't live in those cities I don't live in Chicago and I love Chicago was,
3: boy, I spent I, six, year, six years in Chicago <laughs> man that's cold as hell oh
10: yeah oh yeah the first time I went to Chicago Chicago and saw the waves on Lake um Lake, Lake? Michigan yeah I thought it was the ocean And I was with some other journalists, and we're looking out the window on the top of the Mayflower Hotel, and I said, I didn't know Chicago was on the ocean. And they said, sweetheart, that is the lake. And I think that it was 90 degrees. Well, well, look,
3: look, hey, it's it's a big-ass lake, so I understand you thinking it's the ocean.
10: Yeah, because there were waves. It was so cold, there were waves. (laughs) Yeah, but no, there are certain cities I don't live in. Not the cities that are really cold. In my home state of Washington, beautiful state, but too much rain.
3: So what was so so you you're going back and forth? Um, what um, as you saw things unfold? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what were you thinking? And, and what what were the conversations like uh, for the other uh, expats uh, who were there in Paris and? In, and even, um, you know, even the the French folks as they saw what was unfolding uh, in the United States with Donald Trump at the Hill?
10: The Americans were much more politicized and radicalized than the French. The American expats, it's like James Baldwin, you know, there's still this ancestral pull. So even though black and white Americans were living in Paris, they were watching very, very closely what was going on with Donald Trump. And these were all Democrats for the most part. I say in the book, the Trump base is not hanging out in Paris. Trump's folks are not in Paris. The people in Paris were the Bernie Sanders folk, the Hillary Clinton people the Barack Obama people, when he first ran. So they were horrified, and they were watching it very closely. The French, I had one encounter with a French woman, a very stylish French woman in in a laundromat, and I was, you know, she was dramatic, and I was dramatic. And, you know, I said, I fled America because of Trump. And she goes, what are you talking about? America's a great country. She loved America, she loved the social movement, the fluidity of the social systems. And her attitude about Trump was, how long can he be there? Eight years at the most, that's nothing in the total scheme of history. And what I realized is that the French history goes back to antiquity, and they've had monarchies, and they had Napoleon, and they had rulers who, in the total scheme of things, were worse than Trump. So her attitude was, you know, come on, America's got more going for it than this Donald Trump person who will be there at the most eight years. So she wasn't impressed that I had left. In fact, she thought I was kind of foolish. Um, But it was an interesting perspective because you do have to look at the total arc of history and depending on the people that you're interacting with, their history was very different. And I didn't even feel like telling her about the history of my people in America, which is 400 years which in their scheme of history is nothing, It's nothing. So it was a very different attitude. It was a different attitude. But the French were horrified, but not to the extent that I was and not to the extent that other American expats were.
3: The uh, And obviously um, how America was viewed on, 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 with standing in terms of the rest of the world is, is a part of this uh, as well. And I think in terms of people who just uh, mortified with, uh, this stuff of behavior. I mean, we all saw mm-hmm. how much, uh, of an ass down Trump was attending NATO meetings and others. Yes. And so he was not looked upon favorably, uh, by, uh, uh by, by French leaders, by Germany leaders, by, uh, frankly, 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 anyone except dictators.
10: Yes. 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 And I'll tell you something, Roland. For me, I was really shocked, but it was educational. As a journalist, I would watch the news stations on French television, and I watched the ones, obviously, that were in English. And whenever I turned on any station, the first person I saw was Donald Trump. And what I realized is that America is so powerful and influential around the world that whatever we do, everybody is watching. And Trump was such a left-field kind of phenomenon. Every single channel, the British channels, the French channels, the Arabic channels, every single channel led with this man. And I actually left hoping to get away from him, and I saw him up front and personal every day. So that was an education to me. I came to really understand um, the influence of America, just how powerful it is around the world. And then we saw the things he did, like, you know, insult Angela Merkel, chancellor of Germany. He didn't shake her hand. And then he came on to Emmanuel Macron when Macron came to the States. That's the French president. He came on to him kind of like, you know, because Macron is cute. And Trump obviously thought he was cute, and he's you know touching his arm and flicking something off of his shoulder and pulling him by the hand, and these were the kind of things that you know European leaders are watching, and it's like, oh my goodness, this guy is really you know just a crude dude. He's really a crude dude, and they saw that, um, and I do believe that America's standing was diminished somewhat. It had to have been. It had to have been. Because this was not the America that they admired. And Trump came behind Barack Obama. The French loved Barack Obama. They loved Michelle Obama. This was a class act. The the Obamas, I think, to the French, epitomized everything that they liked about African Americans and African American culture. And then you have Donald Trump follow that. And the contrast was just...
3: You know, beyond glaring. The um, um, what do you think the rest of the world, especially again, be, you being back and forth, here, what do you think uh, the French folks learned about America with those four years of mm-hmm. Trump? Uh, because there's the people don't a lot of people really do. People who don't travel don't really understand how America is seen across the world. There's some places where. We're looked to as uh the beacon on the hill, where others look at us as being still colonizers. Uh the folks really understand the reality of white supremacy, white nationalism, and how it is not that far away. And in fact, we also um in Europe has had to deal with the rise of uh, the far right uh as well.
10: Yes, yes, yes. No, I don't think the French in, in specifically and Europe in general understand the virulence of American racism because it's a different phenomenon. It's different from colonialism. It's a phenomenon based strictly on skin color. French are into class. So you can be any color. If you are of a certain class, you're accepted. The French don't dwell incessantly on race like America. The French don't keep records by race, nationality, country of origin. So you don't have this endless reporting and comparisons by race because that's not what they're focused on. So I don't know if they know how many Senegalese are in little Africa. I don't know if they know how many Eastern Europeans are in the other arrondissements. They don't—that's not what they're focusing on. So they don't understand the nature of racism as we experience it in America, because in America, it's all we focus on. And when you're away from that, it is so glaring. It's so glaring. You realize—and it's. And I compare it to being in countries that don't have guns— if you're in a country that doesn't have guns, violence is not part of the air the way it is in America. And if you're not focusing on race endlessly, interactions are not based on race. They're just not. And it changes your experience. It changes your mindset. It changes how you view the world. So no, uh, the French didn't understand. The French really admire America because we have social mobility, which is something they do not have to the extent that America does. And that's a strength, that's a strength. It's one of the things that gives us as black Americans strength in Europe. And in my case, or because I was living in Paris, strength in Paris. So there's still an admiration for A country that can produce a Jay-Z who can start out being born in the Marcy Projects of Brooklyn and grow up to become a partner in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, a few miles from the Marcy Projects. That does not happen in Europe, especially among people who are in the minority. See, Black Americans, we're still in the minority so to have the kind of social movement that we do have, that's just not the reality in other parts of the world. And it does make America different. It does make it great in the minds of many people. My friend from Honduras, you know, owns an apartment building in Brooklyn. She's a wealthy woman. She had opportunities here she never would have had in Honduras with its drug cartel. She's a black woman. She was she you know, she's a wealthy property owner in Brooklyn. That could only happen in America. And that really is a fact.
3: The, um, a couple of more questions and one that, uh, one that, um, that, that, that that really jumps out in, in, in that is, um, in what you saw, um, assess the reaction you think of White Americans to to Trump. Obviously, he was defeated in twenty twenty, but the reality is the Republican Party is still the Donald Trump Party. They still are all about him, and frankly, that is not going to change.
10: Yes, yes. So, are you asking about the attitudes of Americans here? Uh, No, no. White Americans here?
3: No, no. I'm, I'm asking you about. I'm asking you about. You know, your your perspective looking at it from the outside in, if you will,
4: of Mm -hmm. white
3: Americans and where this nation may be moving forward, because he is still very much uh, dominating in the Republican Party.
10: Yeah. You know, we have a parallel reality. My brother, I'm from the West Coast. I'm from the state of Washington. My brother still lives in the state of Washington. He lives in a small, affluent, town in Washington state. He has a number of white buddies. He's in the minority in that particular city. Most of his friends are Trumpsters. And he said they all believe that Trump was cheated out of the election. They believe that it was rigged, that he really won. And my brother said, these are not bad people. You know, these are guys I hang with. We have coffee. We talk. Um, and I said, well, what do you think it is? What do you think the hold is that Trump has on them? And he said at the root, he reinforces their notion of white supremacy. He said, and they're not even aware of it. They're not, they're not even conscious, he believes. That well, this but, is
3: but, but, there. So, But but he said he hangs with them. Mm-hmm. And, and And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't understand when we talk about white supremacy, is that they don't. They don't believe that they're white supremacists. Right. They don't believe that they're racist. They that's go, right. "Oh, but I, I, I'm not a racist." I mean, right. we're friends. We hang out. We go get a drink. We want to play golf together. Exactly. Not realizing that, no, actually, that's what is exactly what you are. Right. And then, and, and how they will conveniently overlook his comments about black women, and his other comments, and just roll with, "No, no, no, that's just him being him." And they they really don't see any of that. Because for them, it's about their tax cuts uh, and them being pro-life or whatever the hell they talk about.
10: Yeah. And this is, there's also a real American inability to own their sins. See, what I like about the French, and they are not perfect by any means, their history of slavery in the Caribbean was as wretched and as awful as America's. But what the French will do is own up. I call it nation up. In 2000, they declared slavery to be a crime against humanity. They are the only country in the world that has done that. America can't even apologize for slavery. It wants to ignore history. Heaven forbid we have to take responsibility. So the whole idea of not recognizing I'm a racist, not owning up to being a white supremacist, that is to me America's Achilles heel. Until you can own your sins, there will never be atonement. There will never be a kind of racial healing because these folk just refuse. They'd almost rather die than own the sin of slavery. And everything that came from that, if you can't acknowledge it, if you can't take responsibility, to me, it means you are deficient in terms of the kind of character. It's a character flaw. Not being Mm -hmm. able to take responsibility is a character flaw. And it's America's greatest, in my mind, greatest character flaw. If you can't own it, you can't acknowledge any of it. So the whole critical race theory, yeah, of course you're going to object to that because you don't want to take responsibility for it. And it's, after a while, it's sort of an infantile response. It's just, it's immature. You know, we know what the history is. And for you to just put your head in the sand and your butt in the air and say, no, 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 it's going to go away. We don't, you know, uh, we're going to deny tenure to the person who wrote about it. You know, come on, come on. This is infantile, but this is America. 400 years in, 400 years in, still cannot take, accept responsibility. Well, last, last,
3: question. Question, last question for you, what did you learn the most about yourself? Um, in this period?
10: What I learned about myself, I learned that I'm an American. Every time I go out of America, I learn how much of an American I am, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think there are strengths in being an American. I learned that I could live with a certain degree of hardship that I found surprising at my age. You know, I'm not I'm not 25 hiking, you know, through the Pyrenees. I'm, you know, I'm a comfortable, comfortably retired woman in Brooklyn. But I could live in an apartment for a year that was the size of my second bedroom, the whole apartment. I could live with a space heater in the worst winter. I could live with no fan in a summer that had 107 degree temperature. It was, you know, hot streak in Europe that year, 2019. So I was proud of the fact that I was an older woman who could hang in a place that was more comfortable for me politically and spiritually and emotionally. So I was proud of myself for that. And I acknowledge the fact that in all of that, I want American comforts. You know, I want um, central heat. I want a big bathroom. You know, my bathroom was about the size of an airline bathroom, and not kidding with a shower. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I'm five foot ten, um, so. <laughs> but you know, you can you can adjust to those kind of creature comforts. At least I could, because the higher purpose was to be somewhere where I could feel that I could just be. And that's what I say about the French, they let you be. Nobody is coming at you, nobody is looking at you if you walk into Hermes or uh, Louis Vuitton, nobody is looking like you, what are you doing here? I've walked into the finest restaurants by myself and the waiters are, you know, busting their butts to seat me, to treat me well. Um, So I love that about the French, that I can, they, they respect my humanity. And they respect my autonomy, which is very important. And I don't think we realize in America, for me, autonomy is everything. You know, I, I don't want to be bothered by somebody following me. I was out with my agent at a, at a restaurant. She's a black woman. We're sitting, we're having dinner. There are three white people at the table next to us. And one of the men said, so what are you girls doing? What are we doing? We're having dinner reminding our own business, and why don't you do the same? But see, those kind of what I call personal invasions and personal assaults happen all the time in America when you're Black. People think they can just, you know, come come upon you. French don't do that. So I love them for that. I respect them for that. And I'm comfortable in that environment.
3: All right, then. Audrey, (laughs) we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
10: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Roland. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. All right.
3: Take care.
5: (laughs) You too. (laughs) Congressional seat in
3: Ohio. That was vacated when Marsha Fudge left to become Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. We'll give, we'll let you know who won that race on tomorrow's show. Hey, don't forget, if y'all want to join our Bring the Funk fan club, every dollar you give goes to support what we do here at Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans to contribute 50 bucks a year, uh, $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. Those, those resources allow for us to be able to do what we do. Uh, Tomorrow, there's going to be another Voting Rights March taking place uh, here in Washington, D.C. Yes, we are going uh, to be there. Uh, We'll be uh, on the scene. Uh, Wes Bellamy was on the show yesterday. Remember, he told us uh, about uh, this particular uh, event taking place. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, we are going to uh, be showing it for you, and so what's going to happen is uh, we'll have it for you live. Yes, indeed, live. We'll be live streaming it as well, and this is what I mean when I talk about uh, your resources, uh, where they go, how we are putting them to good use, and so we're gonna, they're going to be starting uh, this event taking place. Uh, this is called President Biden. Pick a side. Voting rights or the filibuster. Uh, it's called hashtag recess can wait. Uh, democracy can't. They're going to be marching uh, to the White House from the National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, on 15th Street to Lafayette Park, beginning at 9.45 uh, a.m. As you see there, Black Voters Matter, American Democracy, 100 Black Men of America, uh, League Women Voters, NAACP, our Black Party, uh, and others, they're going to be there. So we're going to be live streaming that tomorrow. Our cameras, cameras will be there. And so uh, we look forward to uh, uh, to doing that. And again, this is why uh, this show matters. Uh, this is because we are independent, black-owned. We are not. Uh, we don't have uh, any corporations, uh, you know, funding us. We don't have billionaires, millionaires. Your dollars make it possible for us to do what we do. Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, Venmo.com forward slash uh, RM Unfiltered, PayPal is PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered, Zelle is rolling at Roland S. Martin.com, Roland at Roland Martin Folks, uh, thank you so very much. Uh, We certainly appreciate it. Uh, It's always great uh, to have uh, the guests on the show. Uh, And again, we look forward to uh, seeing you tomorrow right here. Hey, don't forget, if you're on YouTube, hit that like button. Uh, Hit that like and share button on Facebook as well. That all impacts uh, uh, the algorithm. And we want people to know that this show absolutely matters. Also, we are at 790,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. Uh, We would greatly appreciate if you are not subscribed to our YouTube channel. A lot of y'all watching for free. Uh, we appreciate If y'all actually sign up, uh, Our uh, we actually have 791,026. Uh, we want to hit 800,000 by September 4th, which is our third year anniversary. We're 9, 000, less than 9,000 away, folks. Let's make that happen. So please, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks a bunch. I look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow. Holla!